0: Well, good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. You know, at some point in a child's life, uh, they're asked a question. You were probably asked this question on more than one occasion as a kid What do you want to be when you grow up? All right, I wanted to be all kinds of things, depending on when you asked them that question. When I was a kid, they, believe it or not, there was a time when I was a kid, I had my sights set on being a professional wrestler one day. That's right, I was going to be in the WWF. Right, And uh, then, at one point, if you'd asked me, uh, I'd have said, I wanted to be a professional baseball player, and there was also a time in my childhood where I wanted nothing more than to grow up and to be a Dallas cowboy uh, football player. All right, So my dad's from Texas, my uncle lives in Dallas, so before the Jaguars come along, uh, when I was in middle school, before that, we were big Dallas cowboy fans. all right so uh, we that was in the the '90s when the cowboys were uh, really good. And uh, there was, man, I just imagined myself being a a cowboy one day. Obviously, that didn't happen, right? Uh, But to this day, and maybe some of you guys uh, can uh, relate with me on this, there are times when I'm watching a baseball game, when I'm watching a football game uh, on TV, when I kind of wish I was out there playing with those guys, you know what I mean? I imagine myself making that catch, right? I imagine myself being able to make that throw that that guy didn't make, right? And... Uh, but the reality is, I'm not there. The reality is, is I'm on the sideline. Li- side Scratch that, I'm in my living room, watching it from my couch. I'm not on the field. But later today, there are going to be 22 guys who were also little kids, who also dreamed of being... NFL football players one day, and later today, millions of people are going to tune in and watch them actually put on pads and go out and actually live out their dreams of playing professional football while the rest of us, including myself, eat wings, eat chips, and sit in our, on our couches and watch it happen, right? And as I've been studying this uh, passage this week, Ephesians chapter 1, it's made me wonder in a way how many Christians, how many followers of Christ are kind of like sitting on the couch of their faith. In many ways, kind of seeing themselves as sitting on the sideline, kind of wishing they could be a part of something great in life, wishing that certain things maybe in their life would pan out a little better that would make their life better, dreaming about being part of something big and glorious and important and amazing. And this morning, what this passage is going to do is it's going to reveal the reality for you that in Christ, you are part of something glorious. You are part of something amazing. You are part of something that matters, that's bigger than this life itself. Uh, We're in week two in a study of Ephesians called Unsearchable Riches. And this morning we're kind of moving into this first section. That's the first three chapters, which is focused on what it means to be a Christian. That's focused on what God has done for us in Christ. And Paul's going to be declaring some amazing truths about our life in Christ. This isn't who you're dreaming you could be. This isn't who you're trying to be. This isn't who you hope to be when you grow up one day, all right? If you're in Christ, what we're studying right here over the next few weeks... Here in Ephesians chapter 1, this is a description of who you are right now in Christ Jesus. So here's my challenge to you over the next few weeks is to lean in, to have a teachable heart, and to allow your heart to be encouraged, to experience the grace-saturated encouragement that Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, has been to the lives of Christians throughout the history of Christianity and can be for your life. So lean in and be encouraged this morning. Let's stand with our Bibles open. Hey, by the way, as you're standing, when you came in, you should have received an Ephesians journal. And so that's a gift for you. Uh, take that. Uh, maybe that can be something that helps you in this study to take notes in, bring it with you. It may be something you want to take. Uh, if you like to write notes in your own Bible that you can use in a, a side study that you can do on your own throughout the week or keep it, use it down the road. But we hope that you are encouraged by that. Let me read Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Here we go. Bless be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Would you have a seat as I pray? God, we come here this morning... Now, we don't want to just be part of just another church meeting. Lord, I pray that we would not be here just out of mere obligation. But I pray, Lord, as we enter into these next few moments together, Lord, with expectant hearts, with teachable hearts, with surrender hearts, with hearts that are hungry for your word, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would do something supernatural that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would take your living word and you plant it on our hearts, Father, that we would be changed by it. And I pray specifically this morning that for Christ's followers in this room that you would encourage us by it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what I just read there is part of what is the longest sentence recorded in the entire Bible, all right? The first 14 verses of Ephesians is one long sentence. Now, most of our, in all of our English translations... Uh, you're going to see throughout those 14 verses a lot of commas. You're going to see a lot of punctuation marks, but in the original Greek, there are no punctuation marks at all. It's just one long run-on sentence, 202 consecutive words, and a single comma, not a single exclamation point, nothing. Now, some of y'all are like grammar police people, right? So you, it's like your ministry to the social media world is to correct everybody's grammar. It's your, not your, right? It's there, not there. You know, we appreciate your ministry, right? Um, <laughs> So this may irk you a little bit if you're kind of a grammar police person, but this is actually a pretty amazing run-on sentence. It's the best run-on sentence, in my opinion, that has ever been written, and here's why. What Paul's doing right here in these 14 verses is he's just going off about the core of the gospel. He's going off about all that God has done for us in his life in Christ, and he's so elated Like his pen on the scroll is moving so fast with so much passion and so much excitement, he's not even concerned about coming up for air long enough to put proper punctuation in place. He's not concerned about proper sentence structure. He's just concerned about praising God and he's fired off all of these blessings and these truths that are true about us in Christ Jesus. In fact, I just want to give you a little paraphrase. My paraphrase of what's happening right here, what Paul is saying is, listen, I ain't got time for commas. I don't have time for semicolons. I don't have time for exclamation points because I'm so floored. I'm so overjoyed that God would send His only Son to die on the cross, to raise from the dead for me. And in Him, I am blessed. God chose me. Before He." spun the earth on his axis before he flung a star into the sky into the universe he had his heart set on us he had his heart set on us chose to save us chose to adopt us as his children has included us into the family of god where every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been lavished on us you feel that paul's pumped up he's fired up he's so fired up about the gospel he don't got time for punctuation And this isn't Paul like going through the new Christian phase. Like some of y'all are skeptical, like, ah, yeah, that's cool. He's probably like just met Jesus. I kind of went through that phase in college. I went through that phase in high school after I went to camp. Now keep in mind, when he's writing this, he's been a Christian for around 30 years. Which means the gospel isn't new news to Paul. It's not new news in his life, but this shows us that in his heart it's never stopped being the best, most glorious news in his life. And there's a lot of content that I'm excited about us digging into in these verses and some content that we'll get into this morning in this passage. But before we dive into that, I just wanted to point out that there's a lot that we can learn from the way it's written. There's a lot that we can learn from the exciting tone of this text because there is a danger. And hey, maybe, maybe you're, you're new to church and maybe all of this is new to you, right? And we're glad you're here. And that can actually be a gift that all this is new to you because something can happen for those of us who have been around a lot of this for for a while, for a lot of us Christians who have been around church, is it's easy for us sometimes to lose the awestruck wonder for the gospel that we see in Paul right here. The gospel may not be new news, but it should never cease being the most amazing news, the most transforming news in our life. So let's take a closer look. Let's take a closer look at what gets Paul so floored in these verses. And I pray that this will stir our affections for God and stir our affections for the gospel all over again today, for all of us, all right? In verse 3, it's kind of like the anchor verse to all 14 of these verses, all right? In this uh, verse, in in verse 3, in the first chapter, he kind of presents his thesis that he's going to spend the rest of this chapter for the several verses unpacking. And verse 3 says this, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right. See, he says, what he's saying is in Christ, we've already been blessed, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's all ours. All right. And in uh, the first 14 verses, he's going to show us what some of these blessings are that have been poured into our lives. We're just going to look at, it's it's not an exhausted list. And this morning, we're only going to look at a couple of these. But I want to make a note before we begin to look and kind of mine out some of these blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. I want, to make, I want you to make a note right here as we move into this that there's not one of these blessings that is a material blessing. Right? If anybody ever tries to come along and convince you and say, hey, coming to Christ involves you, you, know, coming to Him, and if you've got enough faith then He promises that He's going to bless you and make you prosper financially and materialistically. Right? If anybody ever says that to you. If you hear that, first, turn off the TV, if the preacher saying that, close the book where you're reading that, or walk away from the person who's saying that to you. Does God bless us with stuff? Yeah. Do we praise God for stuff? Yeah. Do we seek to leverage the things that He gives us for the sake of the kingdom? Sure. But those are not the blessings. That's not the favor of God that Paul is talking about and rejoicing in and blessing God for that falls on the life of every believer. Paul is pointing out here some eternal blessings in our life that last beyond this broken world. A broken world where our money and our stuff fade away, decay, rot, and rust. He is point- Here it is. Get this. He is pointing us here to some spiritual blessings in our life in Christ that make just being a Christian an amazing blessing. Amen. Blessings that will make you want to shout for joy. Blessings that will put a smile on your face this morning. Blessings that will make you want to bless Him and praise Him and worship Him and feel content and satisfied and fulfilled even when you don't have anything in this world. No matter how difficult it gets in this world, hence Paul praising God and blessing God about all of these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that are falling on the life of believers, and he's writing this from prison. So let's take a look. You already look at a couple of these blessings this morning. A couple of these blessings. Here is the first one: In Christ, we are chosen. We are chosen. Look at verse four. And it says, Even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. This is what I want you to know this morning. This is what I want you to hear from God's Word this morning. The very words of God, the inspired, perfect, living Word of God, that if you are a believer, you need to know God chose you. That is amazing news for us to celebrate this morning. Now... All of us know what it's like in life to not be chosen for something, to be overlooked for something. All of, Some of us maybe remember getting picked last on the playground when you were in recess. Some of you maybe re- remember, hey, on the other side of that, maybe not getting picked for the Spelling Bee team or the Brain Brawl team. Some of you got cut from the sports team. Some of you never won the superlative. Some of you didn't get picked to go to prom. Hey, I'll tell you this, if a Let's just say a, a baking competition broke out into this room right now. And some of y'all got some skill, man. I saw those cakes. Some of y'all got some baking skills, all right? If, uh, if, if a baking competition broke out in this room, we got some captains, some of you people who know how to bake, I promise you I will be the last person you're going to pick, right? You're going to go over to the kids' ministry and find like a little kid, like Susie, she's five. I'm taking her over Jonathan, right? It's, it's, well, that's a safer bet for us. You know why? Because I can't bake. Right? But in different ways, we all know what it feels like to be overlooked. And can I press in a little more seriously this morning? Some of us know some of us know some, some, some wounds and some, some, the deep sting of rejection, and that maybe you've had a friend along the way you trusted and loved, reject you and choose to walk away and not pick you. Some of you have felt the sting of being abandoned by father or mother. And you felt looked over. You felt like you weren't chosen. Some of you felt the sting of a spouse who picked someone else and left you. All of us have felt the sting of rejection, but this is an important text for you to understand as a believer. An important truth that is true about your life that will help sustain you through every season of this life. And it's this, that in Christ Jesus this morning, you serve a God who loves you, who pursued you, and before He created the world itself, knew your name, called it out, said you are mine, He chose you. And that's good news worth getting excited about today. But I don't want to, because some of you are some thinking folks and you're some, you know, theologically, you know, uh, deep folks. And I don't want to move. You're already thinking about something right here. And I don't want to move past something and ignore a big question that's probably on a lot of your minds right now. And it's this question. All right, I've come to verses like this before. Let's see if he talks about this. The question is, does God choose us or do we choose Him? In other words, is human history determined by the sovereign will of God or is it determined by human free will and decision-making? Now, all of you just woke up right now. What is He going to say? Where are we going with this? What determines the course of things in our world and in our life? What is it? Human free will and decision-making or a sovereign God? who rules and reigns and orchestrates all things according to his perfect will. Well, the first thing I'll say is this, that that's not a new question. The theologians have debated it forever. Greek philosophers have debated it. It's debated on university campuses all over our country, even this week, I guarantee you. Me and my roommates, when I was in college, we were debating that into the wee hours of the morning, waxing eloquent on our theological positions. Concerning this as 19-year-olds who thought we knew a lot more than we really did. And I don't have time to deal with this in great depth this morning, but let me just spend a moment, if it's okay with you, sharing with you what I've discovered over my 22 years of walking with Jesus, of studying His Word week in and week out, and really thinking a lot about those questions myself. And this is what what I want to tell you, is that the Bible is much more nuanced in its answer than we are in our questions. And what I mean by that is if we were to survey the entire Bible and if the only question you're asking about is, 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 is you know, that question about what determines human history and how all of it unfolds. Is it determined by human response and decision-making or is it a sovereign God who det- decides and determines all things? Which, if you're asking the question, which one is it? Is it A or is it B? You know what the Bible would tell you? Yes. You say, wait, but that sounds contradictory. That that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense in my mind. If he chooses, then I don't choose, right? And if I choose, then he doesn't choose, right? Isn't that contradictory? It is in our three-pound brain minds. But it's not contradictory in the mind of God. The Bible, emphatically, when you walk to the Bible and you read it from cover to cover, and you and you feast on every truth that you come across, what you find is that the Bible emphatically states both are true. That God gives you a capacity to make real decisions that carry with them real consequences that you and I alone are eternally accountable for. And at the same time, the Bible reveals that God is sovereign over all things. And great minds have wrestled throughout the history of Christianity as to how both of those things can be reconciled. And there are some really eloquent theological theories out there that attempt to reconcile all of that, but it's still very mysterious. It's still very mysterious as to how both of those work together. And I believe we're not going to understand fully how they work together until one day we stand before Jesus and our minds are glorified like Christ. Right now, it's very mysterious, and I want you to know that that is okay. His ways are higher than my ways, His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And anytime I run into something complex that confuses me about God, that's mysterious about God, and especially something like this, it's a moment where I should hit pause and step back and go, Man, to, to God be the glory, like you are God. Amen. And this is a moment where I realize how big you are and how small I am, and I worship you for how glorious. And awesome and big and how great you are, and it's okay to allow the mysteriousness of God remain mysterious in many ways. And really, what I want you to hear from me this morning is this: when it comes to those those questions and and those, sometimes that that mystery, I would encourage you as your pastor to make sure you're not sitting around debating the mystery of all this truth more than you're spending time resting in the security of it. That if you're a Christian, listen, God, it is true. God's sovereignty, He has set His heart on you. He drew you to himself. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, He found you. He chose you. He drew him to himself. And in that moment, before you became a believer in the the mysteriousness of God's sovereignty, you had a real decision that you had to make in your life to receive that gift or to reject that gift. Well, I don't know if that's true. Matthew 23 37, it has Jesus looking over all of Jerusalem saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long to gather you under my wing like a hen gathers her chicks. But you refused we got a choice to make. You have a real decision to make in your life. Are you going to receive salvation? Are you going to reject it? And if you decide to receive it, He saves you. He doesn't turn you away. And we can find a great deal of security in that, can't we? That He won't turn away our lost family and our lost friends who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we know when we... Trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. What happens? We get saved. We're received into relationship with the Father. We're saved. And now what this passage does, which also gives us security and comfort, is it calls us to look back in the rest, in the security of knowing that as we look back, that in all of that, it was God pursuing me. It was God doing all of the work. It was God doing all of the raising my dead soul up out of the grave. And because He chose me and because He pursued me and because He did the work means the work can't be undone. You say, well, I I, I still... I, I don't know. That doesn't really scratch my curious itch. Well, listen, that's the best I can do this morning. That's the best I can do this morning. Is to tell you both... Are rails of truth that Spurgeon says run side by side throughout all of eternity, and will only be crossed and reconciled in the minds of human beings on the other side of eternity. Between here and there, we embrace both truths, and it's a mysterious truth, but it is a comforting truth. So, don't spend too much time debating the mystery of it. Spend more time resting in the security of it. All right, we are chosen. if we keep reading, we find out what he chose us for, what he chose us to. He chose us into sonship. All right, first truth, we are chosen. Second truth is we are adopted. All right, look at verse 5 and 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Alright, so I want you to know the good news of the gospel isn't just that Jesus saves you from hell. That's good news. That's amazing news. We love that news. But the good news of the gospel is also that He invites us into the family of God. In the Bible, there is no higher gift or honor than the adoption that we get to experience into the family of God. You know what Paul is reminding us of here this morning? He's reminding us that in Christ, this is God saying to us, you're not going to relate to me as a judge that's angry. You're not going to relate to me as a creator who's distant. You get to relate to me from the moment of your salvation and forevermore as a father. Romans 8.15 says, You, believer, have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's an intimate word there. That means it's kind of like our word for dad or daddy. Now, I'm saying that and some of you, it may be difficult for some of you to grasp the goodness of that kind of relationship, a father-child relationship with God, because of a bad relationship that you've had with an earthly father. Maybe some of you struggle with that because you're like, man, I don't even like my dad. I had an absent father. Who ran from his responsibility. Maybe others of you say, I had an angry father. Maybe others of you say, I had an abusive father. I have an addicted father. Maybe some of you would say, My dad, he's kind of there, but he's kind of distant, kind of always chose his hobby and his job over me. I kind of wish he would have been around a little bit more. I wish he'd invested himself in my life a little bit more. I realized this morning there are some real barriers to some of us experiencing the power and the comfort found in knowing that we're adopted sons and daughters of God. But always remember this. Never forget this. I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it when we. We begin to talk about our place in the family of God and our Heavenly Father being a good Heavenly Father it's this remember that God is not a reflection of our earthly fathers He's a glorious perfection of everything and more that they should be but aren't because of sin the Bible reveals God your Father if you're in Christ like this He's a good Father He's a perfectly good Father He's a father who never leaves. He's a father who never breaks his promises. He's a father who is never a no-show. He's a father who always keeps his word. He's a father who never leaves or forsakes his children. He's a father who is steadfast in his love towards his kids. Slow in anger. Always provides Zephaniah chapter 3 says he delights over his children with singing. We are adopted children of a good and gracious heavenly father. Now what are the implications of that? Well, I could probably put... we We could put together a... 10,000 part sermon series on this and the implications of it and never plumb the depths of it let me give you just one just one and just one word access access if you are a son or a daughter of God that means you have unlimited unhindered unregulated access to God as your father access now different people in our life have different access. To our life right like if I got a text in the middle of the night and I looked over and it was from someone you know that's you know an acquaintance or you know I have a kind of a light friendship with and it said hey I got a little I got a little tummy ache I got a little stomach ache and I just need somebody to talk to I'm probably not going to text them back right it's a little strange first of all and I'm probably not going to text them back right? but you know who does have that kind of access to me my kids If my kids come into my room in the middle of the night, they can crawl into my bed, they can wake me up, they can tell me that their stomach hurts, they can tell me that their throat hurts, they can tell me that they need water, they can tell me that they're a little scared about something. Whatever it is. And you know what I'm going to do? When they come into my room, you know what I'm going to do when they they get in my face and they ask me about that? You know what I'm going to say? Go talk to your mom. She would love to talk to you. She would love to help you fix that problem in your life right now. No, all joking aside, right? They got unlimited access to me. Your kids got unlimited access to you. They're our kids. I'm their father. I love them. And I love that relationship with them. That's right. Amen. I want them to take advantage of that access. Amen. I want them to enter into my presence. I want to know them. I want them to know me. I want to communicate to them. And it's not perfect and it's broken. How much I love them. But He's not broken. He's perfect. And you have a God who accepts you because of the gospel and chose you and loves you and has pursued you and has given you all access to Him. There are no boundaries in your relationship with God in Christ Jesus. It's unhindered, it's unfiltered, it's unregulated access to your heavenly Father. That's something to get excited about. That's something to celebrate this morning if you know Jesus. However, if you're kind of like me, if I'm real this morning, I'm not sure I always appreciate that access. Because I think if I did, I'd probably be on my knees a lot more before God spent in time with him. We are blessed with access. I think it's helpful to think back even on what the Old Testament had and how blessed we are and you how they they would have longed to experience the unlimited access that we have in the presence of our Heavenly Father. The Old Testament people of God were very limited in their access. In fact, only one man, a high priest, could step into the presence of God. And even then, it was only once a year. And even then, he had to go through this arduous ceremonial process of cleansing and washing and sacrificial process to even get close to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And all of that's there to remind us how sinful people have no business being in the presence of a holy God. And yet, verse 4 here shows us that because of Jesus, That because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we've experienced an eternal cleansing. We've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. We've been made, look at the end of verse 4, holy and blameless, positionally righteous before God, which has changed the way He looks at you in Christ forever. Even when we come to Christ, a lot of us struggle with this. We struggle with the way God views us and thinks about us. You're a Christian and, and you love Jesus and you're saved, but you struggle and maybe you're struggling this morning with how God views you. And maybe you, you've messed up some this week or you, it's been already a very difficult year and you kind of hadn't gotten traction in your spiritual walk and you feel like you've distanced yourself some from God, but you're a child of God and you're saved. And you wonder, what does he think about me? What's his opinion of me? You don't have to wonder you don't have to wonder he shouted it out of the heavens two times very clearly in scripture once at the baptism of Jesus the second time at the transfiguration of Jesus and what did he shout down over Jesus this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased some of you are thinking well he said that to Jesus what has that got to do with me if you're in Christ it's got everything to do with you because if you're a Christian if you've been saved that means you've been placed in Christ Paul says it over and over again. In Christ! In Christ! In Christ! That's very important. We're hidden in Christ, which means what we just read, the very words that God speaks over His only begotten Son, is what He says over your life, if you're in Christ. We've been placed in Jesus. We've been placed in the Beloved. The Son of God. Which means now, we are Beloved adopted sons and daughters of God, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Meaning this, there are unending positional privileges that are ours in Christ Jesus. There are unending positional privileges in the heavens that are ours because of what Jesus did and because God has placed us in Christ. You know what that means? The way that God loves Jesus is how He loves me. I'm blessed. It means the way God views Jesus is how He views me. It's how He views you in Christ. We're blessed. Everything Jesus the Son has, I have. What belongs to Him belongs to me. His inheritance is my inheritance. The rest of Romans... If you continue to read Romans 8, we talked about Abba Father earlier there in verse 15, Romans eight fifteen. If you continue to read, the very next verse says that we're children of God. We are now fellow heirs with Christ. That's good news. That means we're getting something. That said fellow heirs with Jonathan, we all be in trouble. It says fellow heirs with Christ. As spiritually adopted children of God, we're heirs with Jesus Christ. We're blessed. His riches are my riches. His resources are my resources. His righteousness is my righteousness. His power is my power. His position is my position. His privilege is my privilege. Where he is, there I am. What he is, I am. What he has, I have. We are blessed. No wonder Paul's fired. I ain't got no time for punctuation marks. In Christ, we're chosen. We're adopted in God's favor and grace and goodness and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been poured out on our lives. And I am those things and you are those things. And I have those things and you have those things because of our relationship with the Father only by the grace of God of Jesus Christ. Only by the grace of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I really don't want to move further in this text. I feel led for us to just kind of stop right here and to bless as Paul is doing the Lord, to bless God for what he's given us and to recognize that it's only because of Christ. It's only by the grace of God that He's taking us and put us in Christ where we're receiving every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What should that make us do? It should make us want to worship Him. That's right, I read a story this week that impacted me. I want to share it with you from a pastor named Woodrow Kroll. There was a young man, and he and his father, they, they loved art. They loved to collect art. And the father, even before the son was born, he collected a bunch of art, very wealthy man. And so he raised his son and his son grew to love art as well. And that was something that they shared in their relationship. And their home was filled with the finest works of art. They had an incredible, expensive collection of art from Picasso to Rembrandt to Van Gogh. They had it all. This was a period of time just before uh, the Vietnam War. And the young son, he was drafted into the war and he went and served his country valiantly and bravely with honor. And then one day in the middle of a battle, he was actually in the middle of rescuing other soldiers. He was killed. He was killed on the field of battle and news reached his father back home about his son's death and his father was just absolutely brokenhearted. And he grieved and the war ended and... A few months after that, the father was in the home one day and he got a knock on the door and he went to the the door and there standing in the doorway was a young man. And the young man said, Sir, listen, you don't know me. You don't know who I am, but I'm, I'm one of the men that your son uh, gave his life for, that he rescued. And we actually sat many nights talking about y'all's love for art. And uh, I debated whether to do this, but I went ahead and did it. And, listen, I'm no Rembrandt. I'm no... Great artist, but I wanted to give you this gift. And the father opened the gift and that young man had painted a portrait of his son who had died in war. He painted a portrait of him and, and the, the father was just overwhelmed with emotion as he looked at this picture and he was just blown away at how this, this portrait really captured the emotion of his son and he just fell in love with this portrait and he, he immediately got it framed and he, and he hung it on the mantle right there in the middle of the home. And it was a prized possession. And that's where it hung for the rest of his life. And one day the father died. And word began to spread, as he still had that great art collection, that there was going to be an auction. And they were, were going to auction off all of this man's artwork. I'm talking Rembrandts, Picassos, Van Goghs, Raphaels, all of it. And on the day of that auction, the art collectors gathered by the hundreds, and there was an auctioneer who was assigned to oversee the auction and the auctioneer walked onto the stage and he placed at the front of the stage the very first item to be auctioned off and it was the painting of the man's son that had hung over his mantle for all those years and the auctioneer said we're going to start uh, opening bidding this is going to be the first item with this painting uh, Would anybody give, let's start with $100 anybody give $100? $200 for this painting and the room was kind of like the room right now, just kind of quiet Come on, somebody somebody willing to give just $100 for the painting of this man's son. And finally, somebody shouted from one of the seats, Hey, we didn't come here for that painting. Move on to the finer works of art. Move on to the ones that we really came here for. And some other people chimed in, Yeah! Like, move on with the show. And finally, in the back of the room, the family's longtime gardener. He raised his hand, the auctioneer saw him. And he's like, kind of a humble looking guy, tattered clothes. And he raises his hand and he said, I can give $10 for it. I'm willing to give $10 for it. And the auctioneer said, $10, certainly folks, we can do better than $10. Can I hear $15? $20? $25? And, And so one of those other people, they chimed in again, hey, just give it to him. Let's move on to the better stuff. And so he said, okay. $10 going once. $10 going twice. Sold. And everybody cheered, not necessarily for the man, but they cheered because now we're getting on to the good stuff. The room filled with excitement. Everybody ready to see the rest of the works of art. But all of a sudden the auctioneer he began to close up his books and reached over and grabbed the gavel and put it in its case. And it was obvious he was closing things up. And some of the same people began to shout, Wait, what are you doing? The auction's not over, it's just getting started. What are you doing? This isn't over. We're ready to bid on the good stuff. And the man, the auctioneer said, Well, here's the thing. There was a stipulation in the will that I was required to keep secret until this very moment. And here's what it said. Whoever gets the son, gets it all. Whoever gets the son, gets it all. And here's what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 1. That because we have the Son, because we've been chosen by God and adopted and placed in Christ the Son, we get it all. We get it all. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, we get it all. Let's pray. If you're here this morning... You don't have a personal relationship with Christ. You don't have access to it all. And this morning, if it's apparent to you and you understand in your heart that you're a sinner separated from God, that Jesus Christ is the only way to have a relationship with God, have a home in heaven, to have forgiveness of your sins, and to be a recipient of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, you're understanding all of that, and there's a brokenness in your heart over your sin, and an under deep understanding that you need a Savior, that, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit's drawing you this morning. We'd love to talk with you. You need to talk with somebody that's sitting near you. And we love before you leave today to help you take steps towards following Jesus Christ. And believer, let me ask you this morning: do you see yourself in Christ? Chosen. Adopted? Are you living in an awareness of your identity? See, some of us here today, we kind of know that, but we don't know it. We're not appropriating that which we already have in Christ in our life. And I'd encourage you to do this this morning, to get before God and say, God, in a fresh way, help me to see me the way you see me. Chosen, accepted, adopted. Help me to see me the way you see me. And may all of the affections of our hearts be stirred afresh this morning for the gospel and for Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we could be called sons and daughters of God.